You're listening to America's Web Radio on the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com. Thank you for listening. Morning. This is the Surveyor's Hour on America's Web Radio. I'm your host, Jeff Lucas. I'm a land surveyor and attorney at law. We'll spend the next hour talking about land surveying and land surveyors and uh, other related topics. As always, your questions and comments are welcome. Uh, you can send them to Jeff at AmericasWebRadio.com. Love to hear from you. You can find out more about me at my personal website, www.LucasAndCompany.com. Uh, you can check out our, uh, our resources that are on our website. All right, this morning, I am uh, happy to say we have a uh, guest on the program, uh, Dr. Bill Hazelton. Uh, from Troy University is joining us this morning, and we're going to uh, discuss um, hopefully a wide uh, range of topics related to surveying. Let me tell you a little bit about Dr. Hazelton. He's an associate professor in the Geospatial Informatics Department at Troy University in Troy, Alabama. Originally from Australia, he moved to the U.S. at the end of 1995 to take up a position at The Ohio State University where he stayed for almost 10 years. In Australia, he worked as a surveyor for a rural water authority as a glaciologist in Antarctica for a year. We're going to have to find out about what that's all about. Dabbled in farming and a couple of business enterprises, completed a Ph.D., and taught GIS and various earth sciences for an Australian university prior to the move to the U.S., in the U.S., he has worked for several different institutions and has been able to visit every U.S. state. Coming from outside the U.S., he studied the nature of the U.S. surveying profession and industry so as to better understand its needs when developing academic programs. Bill is married with three adult sons, has been licensed in Australia for 35 years, and has enjoyed a wide range of different applications of surveying during his career. Uh, Dr. Hazelton, welcome to the show. Thank you very much. Good to be here. All right. Uh, well, um, I was going to have you um, uh, sort of introduce yourself this morning, tell us a little bit about your background, but this bio you gave me uh, did a lot of that for us. Um, but I am, what, what is this, what is a, what is a glaciologist? A uh, glaciologist study the uh, Predominantly the movement of ice, but also the details within it. But my work in Antarctica was very much about the movement aspects. So okay. I spent a so year that, down was, there. Was that was that like a was that a, a surveying task to a certain extent, or uh, a significant survey component? Although there was a lot of other work that that went with it. Um, including all the logistics for the preparation and the reduction of the work afterwards. Uh, so I was on a two-year contract, but I only spent a year down south. Wow. Okay. Now, I ask all of um, all of the guests who come on the program uh, the same question, sort of start things off. How did you, um, how did, how did you get into surveying uh, you know, to begin with? Well, it, it seemed like an interesting career because... Australia has a somewhat different social status for surveyors, if you like. It's very much a profession there, whereas there's always a few question marks over it in the U.S. Um, 
and my father wasn't terribly keen on me going into medicine, um, which was his profession. Um, mm -hmm. So there was that. I mean, that didn't stop my older brother, but uh, that was a little bit different. So, but I was actually influenced a bit by some books by an Australian surveyor named Lenny Bedell, who'd uh, done a lot of the survey work for the inland road system in Australia, as well as the nuclear test sites in Central Australia. So he published several books about his adventures after he'd retired. And these were, um, in fact, I, I noticed a caption on one of them this morning online that uh, Lenny Bedell was the man that men wanted to be. So when it came to picking <laughs> okay. a... When it came to picking a college program, it was surveying. Oh, yes, that sounds like a good one. Yeah, yeah. Uh, a man's man, in other words, right? Uh, yes, but a, an interesting sort of a guy. Um, mm -hmm. Just um, never sort of the the tough guy. Merely the the capable guy. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Right. Well, um, give us, you know, I, I'm interested, uh, give us a little bit of, um, of, of, uh, of a taste of what uh, surveying is like uh, in Australia. Uh, you've been licensed there for 35 years. You started out your career there. Now you've come over to the United States, and you, you touched on it just a little bit there. You said something to the effect it's in Australia it's very much a profession, but here in the United States, uh that's questionable at times. Can you can you expound on that for us a little bit? In Australia, um, surveying had always had an important place because of the the development of the country. Mm -hmm. um, whereas the, when the U.S. expanded west and implemented the public land survey system, you had a fairly straightforward means of subdividing land that you could actually run out ahead of survey. We never adopted that sort of aliquot type system, but we relied on survey for alienation of land. So the surveyors were really the first people to come through when it came to expansion and development, and everything was surveyed ahead of actual alienation. Now, of course, there were a few people who got out ahead of the place and squatted on land, and mm -hmm. they generally got what were termed preemptive rights. But... Um, if you wanted to buy land, then you really had to wait for the survey to be done. So the surveyors were out there first and doing the initial establishment. In addition to that, we um, we have a fairly accurate sort of a, a boundary system, in part because there was a, an edict from the Surveyor General in 1836, which basically said, any time you turn an angle you've got to use a theodolite. You can't get away with a compass. You can only use a compass for determining azimuths. As a result, our angular components are actually very good. So we will actually hold a tidal angle ahead of a distance and then adjust the distances in. So that allows things to fit together. The other bit that came out with that edict was that every surveyor will have at least three tapes and a gunter's chain would be a separate thing, but of those three tapes, one is going to be a standard tape, uh, only to be used for checking the other ones and for standardisation. So the distances always turned out quite well as well. So if I was doing a survey of a mile square roadblock somewhere in rural Victoria, 
If I sort of missed by more than about four or six inches, I'd start to wonder where I'd gone wrong rather than the original survey. Hmm. Okay. So that made a significant difference to how it worked. Well, okay, so the sur- the, the, the land, um, uh, unlike the uh, 13 colonies here in the U.S., which wasn't necessarily surveyed in advance of uh, alienation, as you say, um, what... So were they? Were y'all working on a coordinate system? You, you didn't have the grid, the aliquot part grid. Were y'all working on a coordinate system down there, or you know, when they originally surveyed the, the the land? Well, actually, the very first sweep through, and I'll, I'll just focus on Victoria because that's the main area I know about. That's the state at the bottom right. Um, that was first given a very quick survey that broke the. Um, the area down into what we would term a county and that really has no significant meaning Uh, there's no structure you know administrative structure attached to a county it was just a way of breaking it down and they were largely uh, it was largely broken down on natural features you know rivers ridge lines etc right then within those counties it was broken down into smaller pieces and we were roughly doing the six mile square township things, although we termed them parishes. So these were put across the countryside, but there was also a fairly strong understanding that you had to match your survey to the local terrain. So you couldn't just put roads straight up cliffs and things like that. You sort of had to put them in reasonable ways to subdivide property. One other critical difference was that we started with the roads and then went to the property. So the roads remain uh, what under the Australian system is crown land, so it's the property of the government, and then the land is separate. So you can't actually, you legally can't create a parcel that doesn't have direct access to a a public road. Wow, okay. All right. Well, that that was very interesting. Thanks uh, thanks for that. Um, Now, did you have anything else to add there? I'm sorry, did I interrupt you? Oh, no, 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 I could go on forever. It's where it's convenient to stop. <laughs> well, let's um, let's talk a little bit about um, uh, your your experiences here in the United States. You've been to every, you know, this is off off topic just a little bit, but you've been to every U.S. state. Was that a was that a mission that you had? Um, only slightly. Um, some of them I just made the, you know, I, I would drive into them and get out just to make sure I got there because I, I couldn't come up with a good reason to go there otherwise. But uh, <laughs> in a lot of cases, I've, I actually went there for some reason or I or had to go through them to get somewhere else. So it was just, it took me a lot of years to do it. In fact, I think it took me a bit over 20 years to manage it. But I, um, And when I first arrived here, there were some other people from overseas who had a sort of a bit of a challenge to do that and I thought okay let's see if I can manage it Hmm. okay and that was uh, uh, you initially came over uh, for a position at Ohio State University right right yeah Um, that so that's that's where you came into the United States at in in Ohio Um, what's that program like and is it is it still uh, an active survey program no, um, it sort of folded um, after I left. Part of the reason was it's very difficult to get resources, and particularly in a research-run university. So in days gone by, we had multiple 
undergraduate programs at Research One universities, but there's only one now, which is at the University of Florida. But all the other ones have just gradually closed for, in most cases, a variety of reasons. But you now there's it's always difficult to run these things because they're expensive. Uh, it's not easy to get research work for it, and there isn't really in the U.S. anyway. A, a continuation into a graduate level program that really sort of has surveying attached to it. Right. Right. Yeah, that that's that's um that is a little bit of a problem, but it's it's kind of the same problem all across the country, right? I mean, this basically boils down to attendance, right? Doesn't it? I mean, um students uh sitting in the seats and taking the classes. Partly, um but that's, that also drops back down to recruitment. And that problem is not just within the U.S. Uh, Australia, for example, has had trouble with recruitment as well, particularly in recent years. There's a severe shortage of surveyors and geospatial people generally there at the minute. Um, in fact, um, several people I know don't even bother to advertise positions when they come up anymore. They just try and figure out how to patch over the top of them. Uh, it's pretty a bit dire. Mm -hmm. Is there a degree requirement to be a surveyor in Australia? Oh yes, um, but uh, that that came in in the seventies, basically. Um, so you had to have a, an approved degree. But before that, it wasn't um, it wasn't just four years of experience that you had to have. The boards uh, and this was across Australia and New Zealand because all of the boards are sort of in a collaborating partnership. They would run a series of examinations and this would run to the order of 17 or so examinations in a wide range of subjects, including geodesy, photogrammetry, law, astronomy, adjustment. So they covered what amounted to the examinations for a, a, a fairly straightforward surveying program and you had to pick all that material up as you went in a lot of cases by evening classes or correspondence or whatever was available. So the pre-degree surveyors were actually very well educated. Mm -hmm. Okay. Um, well, Bill, we're coming up on a break here and uh, we'll pick up on this uh, uh, on the other side. Uh, I think it's uh, just about time for that break. So we'll be back with uh, Dr. Bill uh, Hazelton after our break. Thank you very much. Quick Stakes is your answer to staking. Lightweight, easy to ride on, easy to use, easy to find, and won't break your back carrying them like the old-fashioned wooden stakes. Have you tried a sample? If not, get a pen and paper and write down this number, 800 438 0387 or go to quickstake.com that's q-u-i-k-s-t-a-k-e dot com and order your samples ask your surveying supply dealer for quickstakes today this is Dr. Susan Blank, host of Detailing Addiction and medical director of the Atlanta Healing Center please join me on Tuesday afternoons at 4 p.m. Quick Stakes. Does your survey supply dealer have Quick Stakes? If not, demand that they start carrying Quick Stakes. Did you know that Quick Stakes are better for your back than your local chiropractor? 
lightweight, and easier to use than the old heavy wooden stake. Order a sample today and prove it to yourself. Quick Stakes, your bike-friendly stake. You're listening to America's Web Radio on the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com. Thank you for listening. Okay, folks, we are back. This is the Surveyor's Hour on America's Web Radio. I'm the host, Jeff Lucas, and with me today as a guest is Dr. Bill Hazelton. He's currently with Troy University in uh, Troy, Alabama. Um, uh, Bill, we were uh, talking, we were discussing um, education uh, requirements in, in Australia, and so um, I, that would be a good segue into maybe talking about the program at Troy University. Can you? Can you kind of give us an overview of what's happening in Troy with their with their uh, geomatics program? Well, we have uh, more than one program within the department. Uh, we actually have a relatively new department. It actually was created just before I got there, and it amalgamated the people who'd been covering the surveying and related work who were previously in the mathematics department and people who were doing geography who were in social sciences. So we now have five full-time faculty, and everybody's qualified in GIS, as it happens, but three of us are are sort of dedicated to the surveying program, um, Mm -hmm. whereas the other two will cover the GIS program and the geography component. So we have the, the surveying program, which is technically named Surveying and Geomatic Sciences, Um, That's a full four-year degree. We don't have any two-year options. Then we have also just introduced in the last year a degree in GIS. We actually had our first graduate in spring. Uh, We have minors in both of those programs, and one of the reasons is that a GIS minor is a fairly handy add-on for a whole range of people, but we also wanted to be able to get the GIS people to do some of the more surveying-type work, particularly for things relating to QAQS and, and um, some of the geodesy and related things like that. Mm-hmm. We have two other minors, one of which is, is geography, and that's sort of a fairly classical geography minor. But we also have a minor in UAVs or drones, and that's all done online and that's quite uh, been quite a successful little track that we've been running there because it covers logistics, background processes and the qualifications you need to get to uh, FAA licensure for, for flying drones. Okay, so uh, this is kind of... Uh, it, it teaches them how to, uh, among other things, uh, how to be... Uh, a drone pilot, and then be qualified it's to sign for uh, the FAA examination. That's right. It's it's directed direct pointed straight at that, um, so that you can get that um, either as an add on to a degree you already have, or mm-hmm. you can do it externally. Um, although we, we probably should have a certificate for it, but uh, but you can certainly do it without formally enrolling in a major. Okay. Well, my, my own personal experience is that um, the, uh, the GIS people uh, f- um, outnumber the surveyors 
100 to 1, um, uh, you know, across the spectrum. And I'm, I'm only imagining that adding GIS to the program has increased the number of students there. I, I, I don't know. I mean, ha, have your numbers increased when, when bringing in GIS and, and the drone program? I'm not sure how many it would have added. Um, we've got about equal numbers in the GIS and surveying programs at the minute, uh, although the move into the GIS program was pretty rapid because of the, it's only just started. Mm-hmm. So that, it, it's they're about equal. They're not particularly big at the minute, but then, of course, we're a small school. So Yeah. Yeah. Okay. All right. Um what, you know, one of my uh, pet, um, I guess, uh, uh, pet subjects for surveyors is uh, retracement surveying. And mm-hmm. we, we discussed this, uh, you and I, on a phone conversation uh, last week. Um, what, what are the surveying students um, in the survey and geomatics program, not necessarily the GIS students who are learning about surveying, what are, are they being taught anything about uh, boundary retracement uh, at Troy? That's the, uh, actually, if you like, the core of the program. We have three courses dedicated to the whole boundary surveying side of things. So um, you see there's land parcel administration and law, there's a land survey practice, and there's land development. So there's those ones which are focused very much on it. But if you look at the other, um, some of the other surveying courses, uh, particularly the introductory one and the advanced one, there'll be connections from there back into the boundary side. Mm-hmm. Uh, just making sure that you know that that when we discuss aspects of field work, we connect across to you know, okay, this is what you need to do for this kind of work, such as you're doing a boundary retracement. So we try to keep everything tied together. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, all right. Um, you you posed a couple of uh, topics for us to talk about here today. Um, what do you mean by uh, the revolutions in surveying compared to the evolution of the industry um, or profession? What uh, what what are you talking about there? Well, one of the interesting things that turned up when I was working with some students at a different place some years ago was the changes that occurred in the period from about 1550 to 1650. And a revolution is really when people change how they think about an entire discipline or process. So if you looked at what was surveying like in Europe, say, at around 1500? You could have taken a Roman surveyor and dropped them in at around about that time, and they wouldn't have found it that foreign mm-hmm. because you know, the, the concepts and the methodology and the thinking were much the same. You were still thinking very local. Mapping was pictorial. But then go to 1650, and the Roman surveyor would have not had a clue as to what was going on. Uh, The technology had changed, the whole thinking process had changed, mapping was now mathematical, and you could now ask yourself, okay, what's the exact shape of the Earth? 
which was something that you couldn't have even thought about a hundred years before. At the same time, computational processes had changed and we were just thinking totally differently after than before. Mm-hmm. If you go back through history, you'll find there's another couple, but they're much more spread out. But that other one, the, the 1550, 1651, is very concentrated. Now, if you roll forward to 1950, then you have another revolution that starts there, and we're sort of right in the middle of that one. And in fact, we're we're at the 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 equivalent period in from 1612 to 1620 is when there is a rapid change in computational and other techniques, and we're at that sort of same point in the revolution now. Now, with, uh, uh, with the fire drones, machine control, GPS, GIS, I, I guess that's what you're referring to, right? Partly. But there's also a necessity for a change in thinking because there are a number of things that we simply took for granted that we now have to change how we think. So... One of them, which is maybe a bit uncomfortable for some of our listeners, is the concept of measurement. Mm -hmm. Because we've got that to the point where nearly anybody can do a measurement and it's no longer an art form for, you know, 99% of measurements. Right. So for us, it's less important who does the measurement than that we actually know about the measurement, for example, its quality and various other characteristics. So we move away from being measurement people, although we've still got to remain the measurement experts, and we become much more involved with managing measurements from a very wide range of sources. That's one of the changes. Yeah. Um, yeah, you, you, you touched on a little, I guess, pet peeve of mine, uh, Maybe not pet peeve. That's that's not the exact term I'm looking for. But um, yeah, I I I've been around long enough in the serving profession to remember when uh, you know we would pound our, our chest uh, as surveyors and say, "Well, we're the expert measurers. You know, that's what we do. We are expert mm-hmm. measurers." And we we pretty much, <clears throat> as far as surveying out in uh, you know out in in nature, in the field, uh, between property corners, uh, topographic surveys. We, we really were. I mean, nobody nobody could come out mm-hmm. uh, and do that uh, kind of work um, and, and get, and get um, you know, good results uh, with the measurement. So we were expert measures. But as you just touched on, um, anybody with the right equipment can now go out and get the measurements, correct? That's right. That's, that's right, and that causes us to perhaps move our focus because if anybody can get the measurements, then what's so special about us? Well, the critical bit here is that while anybody can get the measurements, what we do is that we provide the guarantee between the real world and the abstraction. So we're the only people who can really guarantee that what you see on the deed or on the map or in the GIS actually matches what's on the ground. And to the, if you like, provide quality measurements for what that connection is. 
that's the important part now, not the measurement itself. And we have right. to be able to move with that. Right. Because that's also where the money is. Right. And uh, but not but uh, again we got we're, we're we're sitting here again with a um, um, this is sort of like deja vu all over again for me as we talk about this. I mean, um, we've we've gone through an era of trying to convince people that you know they need to get their property surveyed, and surveyors are the ones to do that. And now, um, and, and people don't recognize the the importance of a you know. Of a good property survey because it's it's just an an expense item on a on a closing statement when you're closing on a piece of property, and now uh, it seems that uh, there there'll be a lot. At least my um, my um, experience here is there will be a lot of uh, consumers of of uh, measurement data that won't really care uh, where that data comes from. Um, is, it, is it that? Do you see that, or is that just me? No, that, that's going to be the real thing. But the thing is that for most of those requirements, any sort of data will do. I mean, you go to Google Maps, for example, and the mapping background that's there is just off a topo map in a lot of cases. Yeah. And that's good Bill, enough for most people. Let's pick up on that right after the break. We're going to have a break here, folks, and uh, be back with Dr. Hazelton. Very interesting discussion. Um, Back after this break. Quick stakes. Does your survey supply dealer have quick stakes? Yeah. If not, demand that they start carrying (laughs) quick stakes. Did you know that quick stakes are better for your back than your local chiropractor? lightweight and easier to use than the old heavy wooden stake. Order a sample today and prove it to yourself. Quick Stakes, your bike-friendly stake. Hello, I'm Dr. Mike Karuchak. Have you ever wondered what doctors talk about amongst themselves? If you do, join us on the Doctor's Lounge and hear the doctor's conversations amongst themselves. Join me and my co-host, Dr. Hal Schertz, every Thursday morning, 8 to 9 a.m. I want to take this opportunity to uh, mention we've got great programming on America's Web Radio, a lot of veteran and military programming, uh, particularly coming your way uh, for this weekend, 4th of July. And uh, we are very proud of our country and very proud of those that have served past, present, and those that will serve. And uh, we also want to remind everybody that we have the uh, Georgia Military Veterans Hall of Fame here in Atlanta. And if you're coming to Atlanta, be sure and go by that. Go by the Healing Wall in Johns Creek and the Memorial for uh, Vietnam Veterans in Peachtree City. So we'll get right back to uh, Jeff and his guest right after a couple of messages. We'll be right back. Quick stakes. Is your answer to staking lightweight, easy to ride on, easy to use, easy to find, and won't break your back carrying them like the old-fashioned wooden stakes? Have you tried a sample? If not, get a pen and paper and write down this number, 800-438-0387, or go to quickstake.com, that's Q-U-I-K-S-T-A-K-E.com, and order your samples. Ask your surveying supply dealer for quick stakes today. 
You're listening to America's Web Radio on the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com. Thank you for listening. Okay, folks, uh, welcome back. This is the Surveyor's Hour, and uh, our guest here today is Dr. Bill Hazelton from uh, Associate Professor with at Troy University here in Troy, uh, here in Alabama, in Troy, Alabama. We were uh, right before the break, uh, Dr. Hazelton. We were talking about um, uh, we were talking about measurements and expert measures and how anybody uh, with a Anybody with the right equipment can now go out and be expert measurers. As a matter of fact, David Doyle. Doyle do, you, do, you, do you know David Doyle? Oh, or yes. do you, have you heard? Okay, right. He oh, was David on the program. Oh, great, great. Um, he was on the program a few um, a few weeks ago, and uh, that was one of the things I brought up with him. Was uh, he had written an editorial way back in 2013? I mean, that seems like eons ago. Where uh, with the twenty at that time it was going to be the twenty twenty adjustment. When the twenty twenty adjustment comes along, anyone this is what this I'm quoting Mr. Doyle. Um, anyone with what would then could be considered to be a smartphone will be able to get uh, somewhere in the neighborhood of ten centimeter accuracy on the uh, at the ninety five percent confidence level on the fly without base station augmentation. So anybody, I guess, with the new adjustment coming up with a smartphone is going to be able to be, in, in essence, an expert measure, certainly uh, um, more precise than some of the surveying we were getting uh, back in the 1950s, 60s, and 70s. Uh, so w- what is it that's um, – and we have a – mixed with that, we're going to – we, we're back to this marketing problem, and you and I were discussing that at the break, this marketing problem – convincing people that they they really need to get this data this measurement data maybe not everybody needs to but uh, convincing people that you should be working with a licensed surveyor not just anybody with a drone yes um, you've got a situation where I don't think you're going to quite get to the 10 centimeter level with a smartphone just yet Part of it actually comes down to antenna issues um, on the technical side for the phone, but you can get add-ons that you could set it up so a phone would give you that sort of precision, in part because you would also use the phone to connect into a virtual reference network or equivalent system. So you could get down to that level, and in that situation, that's a really great data collection device. Um, not necessarily for boundary work. It's perhaps not quite good enough for boundary work, but it's uh, it's certainly good enough for that. What's likely to happen, though, is that you will get an integration between the higher precision surveying that we can do now and the GIS that's being used as a repository for a lot of the boundary data so that over time, you will actually start to get an, an increase in the accuracy of the results that you're getting on the ground. So a lot of the problems that we've had over the years because of lower accuracy work, simply because that's all the technology could manage, are going to start to get resolved over time. We'll have ongoing records of that. It'll become more publicly available, and that will lead to a, an Im- overall improvement downside of that is that you don't need a surveyor as often, which means that we need... That's just what I was going to ask you. What do we we need surveyors for anymore, right? (laughs) Um, 
Well, first of all, um, we need to change how we look at, at how we get work. So in Australia, for example, and uh, I actually snapped a photograph of, of this on my last visit, um, if you want to develop a property, and whether it's just split it into two lots um, to make a, you know, a couple of townhouses or a granny flat or something, or you want to develop 100 acres, if you're doing that in Australia, your first stop is the surveyor. So the surveyor then manages the process from start to finish. Now, we don't have the same legal issues, so we don't have to call lawyers in for a lot of stuff. Mm-hmm. So if you want to do the development, then it's the surveyor that will take you through the planning process. It's the surveyor that will bring in any engineering work that needs to be done, any landscape architecture, uh, anything else that needs to be done to tweak the project as a whole. They'll do most of the design then they'll do the the layout of it, and then they'll do the final process of getting the new titles issued so that your management sits entirely within one company. So we sort of have a one-stop shop, as it were, for a lot of land development work. That gives the surveyor a lot more opportunities for things that they can do rather than just being part of somebody else's process. Right. That's one option for where you can go. If you're well, more how, how in did, rural how, areas, sorry. How did that? How did it happen that way in Australia? I mean, it, 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 that's just the way it, it happened. Uh, because over here, um, surveying has always been uh, second fiddle to civil engineering, and so and it was considered to be the uh, you know. Um, the stepchild of civil engineering, the illegitimate stepchild in some cases, and uh, the civil, the civil engineers, you know, are, are in that role uh, over here in the United States. How did how did that happen? Where uh, surveyors became uh, sort of the uh, one stop shop for uh, for land development. Well, partly that was, uh, I think we took a fairly aggressive approach to a lot of these things, surveying seriously separated itself out from civil engineering back in the 19th century in Australia. Mm-hmm. It had always okay. been distinct, in part because engineering in Australia, um, it doesn't, it's not really licensed, but it's, the process is managed through the professional societies, whereas okay. surveying is registered by the state because mm-hmm. of the important implications for the people who aren't your clients. The uh, So the professional society that I started out in, in Victoria, was actually formed in the 1880s. And we always saw ourselves as quite distinct from civil engineers. And the, when the program started in Australia after World War II, they were perhaps in engineering departments or colleges, as it were, but distinct from civil engineering. And as we went through, we always had this feeling that we're quite distinct from civil engineers. They may do, you know, and we tended to remind them of it from time to time as well. That and we were, when it came to issues of going into new areas, we were fairly aggressive. Uh, as a parallel, in the 1980s, the surveying profession as a whole tried to actually corner the market in GIS. Um, it didn't work, but we had at least we had a go. <laughs> 
there was no attempt here, by the way, no attempt. <laughs> yes, I was here for some of that. Um, I actually recall going to a, a professional meeting in Ohio not long, long after I arrived, and somebody told me, oh, yes, I remember Ivan Mueller came down here a few years ago, and he was telling us about this... Um, what was it, this uh, GPS stuff and how it was going to be important and we should be involved. And, you know, well, well, we know that's got nothing to do with surveying, so, you know, we told him where to get off. <laughs> so. <laughs> well, surveyors, you know, I, I, again, I, I'm dating myself, but, you know, I, I can remember when GI, or GPS first came out, you know, here in the United States, which uh, from our other discussions we've had, was somewhat uh, late as compared to uh, Australia, but when it first came out and the surveyors saw what a great tool it was, I mean, I, I can't tell you how many um, chapter meetings or society meetings or state conventions I went to where the surveyors were wanting to uh, to have exclusive use of, G, of GPS. You know, it just needs to be for surveying. Mm -hmm. Nobody else can, can have this. And the, the thought that we can um, regulate the tools, of course, is is ridiculous uh, when you uh, you know when you wake up you know from this whatever whatever you were smoking in that pipe, but um, that's you know surveyors um, and, and that's a problem. The, the surveying profession here in the United States has always been, and no knock on engineers. I love engineers. My dad's an engineer, civil engineer, but we've always been under the thumb of the engineers. And I have th that for the life of me. I know how it happened, but for the life of me, I don't know why it is we can't uh, get out from underneath that here. I'm not sure how you would go about it because it was sort of already well and truly done by the time I was born. So, um, yeah. well, Australia. one of the things, yeah, one of the things, um, you know, I've um, or at least an observation I've made when it when it comes to this core issue at least in my mind, the core issue of why, why surveyors are regulated, and that's because of what you touched on what in, in Australia, because of the legalities of the, the property. You didn't say the word property rights, but because of the property rights that are involved. And we we have, as at that core issue, the land surveyor in the United States, whether they know it or not, I, I remind them of this all the time, um, we are the only people licensed and sanctioned by the state in the United States of America to go out into the field and render a well-reasoned opinion on the only question we have in the retracement scenario, and that is where are the property lines located on the ground? We're the only people licensed and sanctioned to do that, and that's why we are licensed and sanctioned. And in that core function, we have more in common with the legal profession than we do with the engineering profession. That's exactly right. And if you look at some of the other areas that sit behind uh, surveying, particularly geodesy, that's one reason why in Europe the surveying programs are often associated more with mathematics rather than engineering. Right. But on the legal question here, the other critical reason why we are licensed is that there's no such thing as a one-sided boundary. And when we survey a property and determine the boundary of the client's property, we're also determining the the boundary of the adjoiners and if we head down the road and establish a section corner or equivalent 
we may affect everybody's property between where our client is and the control point. So we run the risk of actually messing up a whole lot of properties. In, in fact, with a little bit of care, you can sort of screw up an entire section without too much trouble at all. <laughs> Sounds like you've been here your entire life, <laughs> Bill. <laughs> because oh, I've read some of your columns. <laughs> All right, we got about uh, we got about thirty seconds before we're going to take another break. Uh, after the break, maybe uh, you have some other topics here. I'd like to get into the difficulties in educating surveyors, uh, some of the problems with uh, surveying education in the U.S., and and uh, maybe uh, even touch on some, uh, the um, uh, some of the things you're involved with with the state plan coordinate system here in the state of Alabama. Mm-hmm. All right, so uh, we okay. will be back with. Uh, Dr. Bill Hazelton, uh, after this break. Quick Stakes is your answer to staking. Lightweight, easy to ride on, easy to use, easy to find, and won't break your back carrying them like the old-fashioned wooden stakes. Have you tried a sample? If not, get a pen and paper and write down this number, 800-438-0387 or go to quickstake.com that's q-u-i-k-s-t-a-k-e.com and order your samples ask your surveying supply dealer for quickstakes today Hi, I'm Dr. Mike Karuchak. Join me and my co-host, Dr. Hal Schertz, every Thursday morning at 8 a.m. and listen to the Doctors' Lounge, where you get a private insight into the conversations that doctors have amongst themselves. Join us Thursday, 8 a.m. every week. Quick Stakes. Does your survey supply dealer have quick stakes? If not, demand that they start carrying quick stakes. Did you know that quick stakes are better for your back than your local chiropractor? Lightweight and easier to use than the old heavy wooden stake. Order a sample today and prove it to yourself. Quick stakes, your back friendly stake. You're listening to America's Web Radio on the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com. Thank you for listening. Okay, folks, we are back. This is the Surveyor's Hour, uh, and we're having a very, uh, at least in my mind, a very interesting discussion with uh, Dr. Bill Hazelton. Uh, he is with Troy University in Troy, Alabama. Um, now... <clears throat> I wanted to go to some of these other topics that you had suggested. Uh, we talk about um, Bill, and and maybe you can exp- expand on this difficulties in educating surveyors. Uh, for example, professional experience versus theoretical knowledge. Okay, when um, <clears throat> well, when when you hire a surveyor these days, or somebody to do survey work. We're in a very different situation to where we were perhaps even 20 years ago. The technology is pushing us much more towards one person operation. So when you go to hire somebody now, when they step into your company, they have to be able to work total stations, possibly imaging devices, drones, GPS, and then when they come into the office to be able to process all of that information and they have to be able to do that uh, more or less hit the ground running for them to be productive because if it's a one-person operation 
you can't give them instruction in the field the way we tended to do as in the sort of the more apprenticeship approach. Mm-hmm. So there's that particular aspect. But then you've got to think, okay, well, how would we give them that experience before they get to the job? And the problem we have there is that we also have this burgeoning amount of theoretical knowledge that we've somehow got to stuff into the program in order to give them a reasonable level of protection against developments in technology. Because technology has a half-life of around about five to seven years, techniques last for around about 10, and theory has a half-life of around about 15 to 20. So during my 40-year career, for example, the only bits of technology that we're still using are handheld pocket tapes. Everything else has undergone significant, if not total, change, and a lot of things have disappeared. So we have to make sure we've got the theoretical foundation so that the graduates don't become obsolete, possibly by the time they've graduated, but we also have to have them up and running on a wide range of different technologies and balancing that in what's really only three years when we've got them because one year's um, on general studies, it doesn't leave us a lot of time. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, and, and you t- that kind of touches on a, a problem, not just in uh, educating surveyors, but uh, in just having um, having good help uh, at your surveying company. Um, you know, you can um, you can spend a lot of time teaching them uh, about the uh, the tools of the trade, uh, what, what what we're using uh, in the field, uh, GPS in particular drones now and um, other uh, stationary LIDAR and other such uh, tools and teach them about theory and then what happens is we get some little recession comes along and those are the first people you lay off and then we come out of the recession and where are these uh, these people that, you know, where are these trained people that uh, used to uh, work in our companies and and, uh, they could go out in the field uh, by themselves and, and competently uh, collect data. That's a a major ongoing problem. So one of the things that I think a lot of survey companies and even government organizations need to do is look at how do you diversify your income streams? Mm -hmm. What other things can you look at? Um, GIS has some significant possibilities here. And Mm -hmm. if you're working in a, a Part of the reason for that is that it can be used for asset management, and during a recession, that often becomes particularly important in order to reduce the costs of managing a wide range of assets. The other critical bit is that in rural areas, we have a lot of economic pressure on agriculture, and one of the ways of making agriculture more efficient is various aspects of precision agriculture, and that relies on ongoing data collection. A significant amount of that can be done by a surveyor with a drone, with soil sampling, a range of other uh, Mm -hmm. means of just collecting different data in the field and bringing that into a more GIS environment. So that gives you uh, another potential income stream uh, in a region rather than just relying on the more traditional surveying. Well, and that... That reminds me of the discussion we had uh, 
before the last break. Uh, over in Australia, the, the surveyors, uh, in, before your time, you were born into it, the surveyors were so, are sort of the one-stop shop for um, land development. Now, are we, are we teaching, um, uh, maybe not at Troy, but are we, are we teaching the surveyors about uh, planning and land development kind of, uh, you know, sort of issues? Very little. It's, um, first of all, if you want to introduce something like town planning, you have to have somebody who can actually teach it. And mm-hmm. I, we, we had that at Ohio State, and I managed to find a, a planner in Anchorage to teach it when I was at the University of Alaska Anchorage. But it very much depends on having somebody who actually knows what they're on about, rather than just, you know, you parroting what you learned 20 years ago. Right. The, uh, and keeping that up to date. So you need a, a real diversity of people to support a surveying academic program, and that isn't always readily available because you've often got to put the programs where there is support for them. Um, right. As Alabama found with putting a program in, Troy was the only place that seemed prepared to take it, and they had no engineering capability at the time. Troy, engineer. Uh, Troy, Troy University. Troy had no, had no yeah, Troy didn't had, have a didn't have an engineering school. Had no engineering at all. In fact, it's only just this this year starting now that they're going to have a small program in electronics engineering somewhere. Oh, okay. So uh, yeah, so uh, basically, it's um, uh, that, that's one of the beauties I think of, of Troy University is uh, it's. Um, um, it, 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 as long as we can get you know recruits to come in there and um, and, and sit in those classrooms, uh, what about recruitment of surveyors to the profession? What are, what are the problems there? Well, the thing is, you've got a first of all huge competition, and even within other areas that you would attach to surveying. To give you an example of this, back in the 1990s in Victoria, Victoria's a a small state for Australia, it's somewhat larger than Alabama, but the population is about the same as Alabama's population, about a bit under 5 million. Mm-hmm. We had two competing surveying programs that were collectively pumping out about 80 graduates a year at that point. Wow. And, it, and every single one of them was qualified to move into the licensing track um, after graduation. However, by the early 1990s, we'd got down to the point where we're only registering about two people a year. So we had 80 possibles every year and we couldn't get them into the surveying profession mm. as opposed to the other areas. So they all went off, they became GIS developers and GPS people and mappers and photogrammetrists and everything else. But the surveying profession wasn't... Mm providing them with the path to get the registration and consequently into the more traditional boundary side of things. So that was being missed out. And part of the reason is that we actually don't explain to to prospective students uh, very well about the profession as a whole. So when you look at the promotional materials, we do a lot of, okay, wow, we've got these nice toys and these are the sort of things we do, but we never right. tell them why we do them. Yeah, 
Um, it's about it's, it's about the why, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, because if I'm if I'm going to move into a career, I want to know. Okay, what difference do I make in the world? It's right. not just about me. Um, you know, I want to make a, some sort of a an improvement somewhere. I, I want to be able to do something that's notable other than just get a paycheck. So how do I explain that to to people as to why it's important to come in? And I, I found that that seems to be a much better way of talking to people about it, the why, rather than simply the what and the how. Have, have you ever seen um, Simon Sinek's uh, TED Talk? Do you know what TED Talks are? Oh, yes, no TED Talks. Yeah. Did you ever see Simon Sinek's TED Talk on... Uh, on um, what he calls the golden circle or, or the why uh, uh, the why question he says he's saying, exact, he's saying the exact same thing you're saying here it is his repeat line on, when he's doing that little TED talk it takes about 18 minutes is people don't buy what you do they buy why you do it you know exactly. it makes distinctions between uh, you know Apple and how it became you know madly successful with its uh, with its computers and its iPhones, there are other people out there who do the same thing. But the reason why uh, the reason that Apple was so successful is, I guess, Steve Jobs came out there and told them why he was doing it, and uh, mm-hmm. and and that's and that's what people buy. People buy why you people don't buy what you do; they buy why uh, you do it, and that's uh, I mean, you're spot on with that. Uh, we've probably been talking about this. Uh, we don't. We only have a few, maybe a minute or two left here. But just we've been talking all around it. But I haven't asked you the question. What do you see? What does this, the future of surveying look like to uh, Dr. Bill Hazelton? Ah, now that depends on where it is. Um, it's going to be very high-tech and probably a lot more theoretical. It's going to be very heavily image-based when it comes to data collection. We're also going to be very agnostic about where our data comes from. As long as we know about it, then we can deal with it. Um, We're also, in order to be successful, everything we do ultimately helps somebody make a decision. But one of the problems with that is that we often don't know how the decision is made, so we don't know what the critical information is. We need to get involved with the decision process right the way around the loop so that we can actually be more successful in dealing with what we do and also make ourselves more essential to the process, which is also a way of safeguarding ourselves economically. Yeah. Um, Well, that's... uh that's pretty good, and uh, you know, with that, Bill, we're gonna we're gonna be able to wrap the show up. And uh, Dr. Hazelton, I appreciate you being on today. Uh, I, I thought it was a great show, mainly because of you. And uh, thank you so much. And I'll be seeing you in a couple of days down in Gulf Shores. I'll be looking forward to it. And thank you very much for inviting me on the show. Okay, have a great day. You're listening to America's Web Radio on the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com. Thank you for listening.